A story they're writing today A wall that they're climbing You can carry the past on your shoulders You can start over Welcome to the broadcast of Calvary Chapel, Jacksonville Where the pastor is Pastor Ricky Rueda Grab your Bibles and read along Now here's Pastor Ricky Well, good evening. Once again, welcome to Calvary Chapel. Glad all y'all are here. Appreciate y'all coming out on this fine, uh, cool evening. As well, we want to welcome those who are watching via the media. Um, I want to ask if we'd all stand for the reading of the Word. I'm going to ask you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 is where I'm going to read from to start out. 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you're there, say amen, please. All right. We're going to pick up in verse 1. The Apostle Paul tells us by the Spirit, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, Timothy, Be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Father, as we come to your throne this evening, thank you for the exhortations that your word gives us. Father, it is my prayer tonight that as we go through the study of your word, We understand that this is an act of worship, just like the song service of worship we were just so blessed to participate in. This is the continuance of worship of you through the study of your word. And I pray that you would wash us in the water of your word by the Holy Spirit. And Father, that you would encourage us You would comfort us. You would exhort us. Whatever we need, you know. And we trust by faith, not only that you will do it, but you desire, Lord God, to give us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. And so, Father, we commit this evening to you and our hearts and our minds. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And those in agreement said, amen and amen. Please be seated. Last week, we were in Philippians. And we saw where Paul was exhorting the Philippians uh, because they needed to be of the sound mind. There were two women specifically that Paul was speaking to. And what he had gave them to do was to rejoice always. That was what they needed to do to be of a same mindset. And the result of that 
came forth in his words of how their minds would be guarded, their hearts and their minds would be guarded in Christ Jesus. And he told them the things that they needed to meditate on to accomplish that. This evening's gonna be a little bit different, but I think as we enter into this tonight, this is gonna be what I would call a thematic study, all right? A thematic exposition. This is by way of a subject analysis. I've picked a subject which is gonna be called sound doctrine. Let me repeat that, sound doctrine, okay? And so we're gonna do a subject analysis of that, of sound doctrine. Uh, this might be somewhat a little bit more technical this evening than last week, but please bear with me. And if you all have any questions afterwards, by all means, feel free to, um, to, to approach me, ask me. And if you need the notes, just email me and I would be more than happy to give them to you because I'm going to go through a lot of scripture tonight. I'm going to kind of let the scripture explain the points that I have here. So... What we have here is sound doctrine. Um, we are going to remain within the pastoral epistles, okay? First and second, Timothy and Titus, and then we will skip to second John for the very last application, for one of the last applications. So with that being said, just remember we're going to stay within these letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus, mainly tonight, okay? And so I want to establish a little context before we get moving into this thematic exposition, this subject analysis. First, we need to understand that First and Second Timothy and Titus, there are two things looked at here. They are recognized as pastoral epistles, pastoral letter, letters, and they are instructional. What I mean by that as far as the pastoral epistles, a young pastor named Timothy, who was one of Paul's protégés, as well as Titus, a young pastor, same thing. And the second thing about this, these letters are they are instructional by way of an apostle speaking to pastors, okay? So you have an apostle exhorting, commanding, loving, uh, these two pastors in a way that they need. And I would suggest that we need that as well. These letters, all, all three of them, were basically written somewhere around 62 to 67 AD. 62 to 67, not 1962, but 62 to 67. Okay, and historically, they are still under a Roman government, okay? And Nero who reigned from 54 to 68 AD is the one who is reigning while the Apostle Paul writes these letters. Now, the only reason I bring that up is because Nero is known historically as a madman, okay? So things were not good during this time. They were very oppressive. So their pastoral and instructional letters, the, the timing was 62 to 67 AD, Historically, it is a Roman government. It is somewhat oppressive. And the culture of these letters, Ephesus was the area where Timothy was, okay? When Paul writes this, he's in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, there was, at that time, God and goddess worship. One of the gods was 
named Bacchus. He was the god of drunkenness and debauchery. And then there was the goddess worship where Diana was one of the goddesses that they worshiped and she was the goddess of sexual immorality. So that's the culture of what's going on in Ephesus where Timothy is. On the other hand, culturally, Titus is in an area called Crete, Crete, according to the way it's pronounced in the Greek. All right, so Crete is the fourth largest island in the Mediterranean. And the name of this translated into English is fleshly. So that already gives us an idea of what the culture is somewhat about, okay? And interestingly enough, in Titus uh, chapter one, Paul is speaking in this letter to Titus. He says, speaking of the, the Cretans, one of them, a prophet of their own said, and he quotes this prophet, this Cretan prophet, Cretans are always liars, they're evil beasts, and they're lazy gluttons. And then Paul goes on to say, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, why? That they may be sound in the faith. And that's Titus 1, verses 12 and 13. So Paul gives a description um, of what the prophet said about his own people. So we see that it's, it's a very chaotic place. He refers to the people as evil beasts, okay? Uh, lazy gluttons. I mean, that's pretty radical language there. Now, with this context of being established, Tonight, what I want to do within these letters is establish this analysis of sound doctrine. Now, the reason why I say this is because sound doctrine, I believe, is another way as how we as Christians can be rejoicing always in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice, as Paul said, we saw last week in the book of Philippians to know and live by sound doctrine. It's so necessary. All right, so with that being said, we've got to figure out, I've got three questions that I'm going to submit to you tonight, and we're going to try to answer them through Scripture. No, we're not going to try to. We're going to. I'm sorry. The first question is going to be, what is doctrine? We need to define that, right? The second question is, why is it important Why is doctrine important? And the last question is simply going to be, how do we apply doctrine to our lives? So those three questions are what we're going to look at. Now, the first one, what is doctrine? Well, I'm going to tell you there's two different words that Paul uses within these three letters. Specifically, One of them is didache, which most people have heard, or didache, however you want to pronounce it, I don't care. Depends on who your Greek teacher is. And that word didache, the first word that I've given you, is seen in two senses. Number one, it's just plain out simple teaching. That's what doctrine is. It's also referred to and described or defined as a set of truths or 
practices to be learned and followed. You see, it's not just about academics, it's about applying in the life. And so that would be the first definition that Paul is using throughout these letters. Uh, He uses actually the word didache as doctrine 15 times within these three letters, 15 times. He will use the term sound doctrine four times within these letters. So this is an important topic. And if it's important through, by the Spirit, should I say, qualify it, by the Spirit, through the Apostle Paul to the Christians of his day, is it any less important now? I think if we look at what's going on in our own country, as well as globally, it, it behooves us to understand sound doctrine, what it is, why it's important, and how it applies, so that we can be shored up and comfortable in the sense that we are confident in the things of the Lord, because my friends, that brings peace to our hearts. Now, the second word that Paul uses throughout these letters is didaskalia. You like that? Didaskalia. And it too simply means straight teaching as well as instruction. It can be corrective, okay? Uh, It is actually a synonym of the first word. Like I said, hang in there with me. It's going to be a little technical at first. But with this, Paul uses the term didaskalia 19 times in all of his letters, not just within these three. So he uses that term a whole lot. And it's actually used two other times in the New Testament, once in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, verse 9, if you want to look it up, and as well as the parallel passage in Mark 7, 7. So we have defined, we see what doctrine is, and it is simply and basically just teaching or taking a set of truths or practices, we're learning them and then we're applying them, we are following them. It's very instructional. And so now we move to the second question, which is why is doctrine important? Why is doctrine important? Now, I'm going to give you six reasons why. Please understand, this is not exhaustive. This is just six that stood out to me rather quickly, rather easily to see, and we're going to let the scriptures speak for themselves. The first reason that doctrine, that teaching, the, the understanding of sets of truths of scripture and and the practices of those to be followed. The first reason is simply because of the origin. Simply because of the origin. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, look down in verse 10. Paul telling Timothy by the Spirit, he says, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is, notice, contrary to what? Sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And so the first thing we see 
with doctrine and its importance is because of its origin. What do I mean by that? We have seen right there in that passage alone, 1 Timothy 1.10, number one, it comes from God. That's why it's important. Number two, it is founded or its foundation is in the gospel. Notice verse 11 again. Everything he said in in verse 10, he said in verse 11, it's according to the glorious what? Gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Paul speaking of himself. But also notice as we look down in verse 15, that the description of the gospel is actually found in verse 15. Verse 15, Paul says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of some acceptance. Is that what it says? It says worthy of all acceptance, not some, not a little bit here, not a little bit there. And please hear this, not when it's convenient. Okay? Not when it's convenient, but it is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance Why? That Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? Save sinners. And Paul goes on to say, of which I am chief, present tense. So not only is sound doctrine important because of its origin, it comes from God. Its foundation is found in the gospel itself. And that gospel is actually described in verse 15. The bottom line is simply that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is what it's all about, my friends. As I was having a discussion earlier with a brother, it's not about politicians getting the right politician into an office. The savior of the world is not found on Air Force One. I am not trying to prevent anybody or say don't worry about voting we need to do that and exercise the rights that we actually have at this point in time in this country but my friends what's going to change this country to transform it from the inside out is sound doctrine which comes from God and is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ which is to save sinners That's pretty simplistic, isn't it? Let's move on. Another reason why doctrine is important. Because if you use it, not only will you rejoice, but if you use it, Paul says that you will be a good minister, a good servant, a good diakonos. Okay, that's one of the terms. That's a term we use for deacon, by the way. And it, it can be described or explained or defined as a table waiter. But Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, says this. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. Again, it's not just enough to learn it. 
I'm throwing out a bunch of technical terms. And as good as that is, and as deep of a definition as you can get into in language and stuff, my friends, if, if it doesn't make it from here 12 more inches down into the heart, what is it? I'll tell you what it is. Paul describes it this way. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So if we don't ever take the knowledge, the academia that we can get and take it and apply it in our lives for the glory of God, my friends, all we've done is become puffed up according to the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. And you can find that in 1 Corinthians. So the second reason why doctrine is important is because it makes us good ministers. Now, I would submit to you on a side note that the fact that the term minister here is diakonos, we see that the apostle is speaking to a pastor, and we find out that a pastor is not just a shepherd, but he's also a deacon. He has to meet the qualifications of that as well. But I would submit to us further this evening that beyond the immediate context of what we're looking at, you can prove scripturally that all Christians should be deacons in the sense of service and serving others. That is simple to prove throughout scripture. And so there we have two reasons. One is because of the origin. That's why doctrine is important. A second is because we become good ministers, good servants of the Lord. A third reason why doctrine is important, because it's profitable. Woohoo, my bank account's going to increase. No, that's not what he's talking about. Yeah, your spiritual bank account's going to increase in heaven. You're putting forward reward in heaven, maybe. Yeah. But Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, and this is passage that a lot of people are, are familiar with, but I'm going to read it here. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul tells Timothy all Scripture, not some of it, all Scripture is what? Given by inspiration of God. If you have an NIV tonight, it says, is God breathed? Theopneustos. It's a, that's a cool word. Breathed out by God. I like that better um, in the NIV. But the New King Jimmy that I'm using here says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And beyond that, it is profitable for what? Doctrine. We haven't heard that word too many times yet, have we? It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God, oh, by the way, that's anthropos, so that's mankind. It's not just the dudes, okay? That mankind of God may be what? Complete or mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is why doctrine is so important. It's profitable to your spiritual walk. It's profitable, profitable to be able to help others. 
And my friends, that is so necessary. We can get in, I can, I know I do, maybe I'm the only one, get in a funk, a dry period, and I need someone to speak scripture to me and say, you know, and I shared it with with everybody before, at least when I gave my testimony a couple weeks back. Sometimes my walk, my wife has to come up to me in my walk with the Lord. My countenance is just kind of like, it doesn't look very rejoicing in the Lord. She, what are you doing? I'm stepping on your lip because that's where it is. I mean, lift your countenance. You're saved. You're born again. You're heaven bound. Why are you so downcast, O soul? Have you ever read that in the Psalms? Yeah. I am a child of the king. I'm a prince according to the royalty of Jesus Christ. You ladies are princesses. Take that for what God is saying through his word and rejoice in it and be confident in it. It doesn't matter what the world thinks of us. The only thing that matters is what God thinks. And if we are walking in sound doctrine, our countenance will be lifted, we'll be rejoicing, and it will be profitable for just about everything. It's not going to be profitable to the person who just wants to rebel. But all we can do is deliver the love of God through Jesus Christ to a person. And how they respond to that is up to them. It's not my job. It's not your job to save anyone. We are lettermen. We are mailmen. We deliver a message and if the heart, if the soil of the heart is ready to receive, then hallelujah. I had the privilege of talking to someone, what's today, Wednesday? Yesterday, I got a text. In the text, the person said, uh, me and my husband have been talking and praying, and I, I, I need to know more about I need to give my life to Jesus. Now, that's a good text to get. That's a great way to start your day. So I was, by God's grace, I was allowed to minister to that situation. And I got a text today that she committed her life to the Lord. Is that not what the gospel of Jesus Christ is? Is that not what sound doctrine is found on? And all I did was basically give her scripture to meditate on. I didn't lead her in a prayer. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but what I don't want to do is give someone a false sense of security. Let the scripture speak. Why? Because it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. You know what righteousness is? It's that which is right before a holy God. It's not this with a flowing robe like the Pharisees in this age. Righteousness, God's righteousness, it's just that. It's what is right in God's eyes. And that's what sound doctrine is for. It's profitable for that. Number four, Number four, it's a good witness. It's a good witness. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 says, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance. Back in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1, he said to Timothy, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor. Mm, that's a toughie to apply. Can be. Why? So that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Where do you get in that, Paul? She realized that sound doctrine impacts your workplace. If you're in school, it impacts the students in your school. If you're in Walmart, in the line, it impacts those that are in line with you. But you must be willing and you must be full of sound doctrine. In the letter to Titus, <clears throat> chapter 2, excuse me, verses 7 through 10, Paul instructing him, says, In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. That one who is an opponent... In other words, who's opposed to what you're saying may be ashamed having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not back-talking, not giving your boss a hard time because you don't want to do something, Okay. Bottom line is, the only time I could do that is when they're asking me to do something that goes against the word of God, okay? Not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn to put on to clothe the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Doctrine is important because it's a good witness. As we live out sound doctrine, as we apply it in our lives, we have a good witness before people, regardless of what venue we're in, okay? A good witness. A witness is a lifestyle, okay? It's not evangelizing where we're giving the gospel, our witness are martus, where we get the word martyr, all right? The word martyr means that's your witness. That is your lifestyle. We often refer to a person that gave their life for the Lord as a martyr. No, your living life as a Christian, that is a martyr. The fact that you died for your faith simply proves that you have lived a life of a martyr. Understood? So that's the fourth reason why doctrine is important because it brings forth a good witness, a good lifestyle. Number five, it's simply a command of which we need to obey. How about that? How simple does that get? 
1 Timothy 4.13 says, Till I come again, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to, there it is, doctrine. In Titus chapter 2, verse 1, he says pretty much the same thing to Titus. He says, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for, there's our word, sound doctrine. The reason why I use those two is just to bring forth the point that doctrine is important because it's simply a command, both of those scriptures that I gave you, 1 Timothy 4.13, Titus 2.1, they are both present, active imperatives. That means the person is commanded continuously. The present tense means that's something to be done continuously. And it is a command. It's not a suggestion. It is a command to use and to understand doctrine. Number six, and this is the last reason why I'm giving you. There's many more, and you could find plenty more, I'm sure. But this is the last one I'm used for this evening. The reason why doctrine is important, number six, is for stopping wrong doctrine. Whoa, whoa, whoa. is that important today in the church? I'm not talking about the world. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand. We really need to understand is that we can expect Nothing more than the world out of those who are of the world. We can't expect them to live the life of a Christian and walk in sound doctrine. That's why we need to. So number one, they can see our lifestyle, our witness, and we can speak forth the word of God, sound doctrine, to hopefully lead them in the gospel and that they could commit their lives to Jesus Christ that is the sixth reason why doctrine is important. It's for stopping wrong doctrine. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, verse 3, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. Why? That you may charge some. He didn't say all. That you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Remember, this is in Ephesus. Okay, this is where Timothy is. You need to charge some that they teach no other doctrine. No other doctrine. Okay, that's a complex word. There are complex phrase into to one word. Heterodidascalia. Basically, what, what he's, he's saying is another, which is opposite, exactly opposite of what you have learned in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is contrary. It goes against. And my friends, this needs to be shut down and not entertained in churches today. My pastor friends, did you hear that? That is our job as shepherds. We need to refute, to stop wrong doctrine. And we need to do it quickly 
and precisely. I had a conversation here uh, last week. There was a young man that came in off the streets, and I was called to go talk to him, and uh, it got into a conversation, and this young man had a lot of knowledge. He had been listening and learning from some individual, but whoever he was listening to did not believe in the Trinity. He thought the church fathers, all right, were Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. I mean, and I talked to this man as gently as I could, and I even brought forth the, the passages where he had some things right, but there were so many things that were contrary to sound doctrine that I would just tell him simply, I, I haven't read that. Well, you say you study the Bible. I did say that. That's why I'm telling you that what you're saying is not in the Bible. Some things were, he was taking from here and here and, and blending together. It was all chaotic, kind of like Crete, where it was chaotic, as we saw. But it's very important for this, for making sure that wrong doctrine gets shut down. Now, we've answered why doctrine is important. We gave six things and a lot of different passages that spoke directly to why doctrine is important. So how do we apply doctrine in our lives? And I'm going to give three ways. There's many applications to each one interpretation of Scripture. You can come forth with R.C. Sproul, for those of you who know him or remember him, he, he used to say, you know, there's one interpretation, but there are many applications. And with that, I would agree. So I'm going to give three applications. And normally when I'm looking to apply Scripture, whether it's just in my own life or whether it's for a study such as this, I look at it from three different angles. I look at it from a pastoral angle because I'm a pastor. All right, for you ladies, that might not necessarily, you're not, you don't have to pay attention to that in a sense because you're not going to be a pastor. I know, get in trouble for that, oh well. But you guys that are in here, oh, I'm not a pastor. Au contraire. If you're married and in your home, you're the pastor of your home whether you want to be or not. And for you men who are not married but want to get married, you going to be. So get it down now. Learn sound doctrine. So that's the first way I want to look at the way it applies is to a pastor. And that will be the most confrontational. Trust me. Number two is on a personal level. On me personally as a Christian, you know, before I'm a pastor, I'm simply a Christian. So I have to apply sound doctrine in my life on a personal level. And then the third way we're going to apply this is simply as a congregation, as a body of Christ. We're not just a bunch of individual islands out there floating around. When we come together like this and on Sundays and even in little groups when we're just getting together in fellowship, my friends, that's congregational. It's corporate. And the Lord loves it when we do it. That was one of the things that young man said. He didn't go to church because he didn't see where it was necessary in Scripture. I even quoted from Hebrews to him. And he said I was wrong. 
he would not let me show him where it was in the Bible. He says, I'm not going to read it. Okay. What do you do with that? Who cares? That's over with and done. Pastorally, how does it apply? 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul says to Timothy, for the time will come, and this is what we read in the beginning, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itchy ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables or fairy tales. Brothers and sisters, we are there. It is so evident that we are there. That time has arrived. We are living in that day and age. We must be able to exhort and convict. Pastors, this is our job according to the scripture. Titus 1.9 says, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. Why? That he may be able by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict, who go against sound doctrine, like I dealt with last week, and like Paul is going to speak very clearly about here. Even when they leave, if necessary. Well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Pastors must deal with decisive people promptly. This is not something that's up for debate. If the scripture instructs us to do something and commands us to do something, then we need to obey. Doesn't mean we, we should be, as I like to say, jerks for Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. As fun as that may be in some incidents, okay? That's not what I'm saying that the word permits. But as a pastor, I must deal with divisive people very promptly in the body of Christ. I have seen it ruin churches. When I planted the church out in Front Roll, Virginia, that's right, Front Roll, that's the way you guys say it. For the first three to four years, me and the gentleman that Calvary Chapel Manassas sent out to plant that church, that's all we did was refute and correct bad doctrine. Once, once a church is being planted and it's new, it's like all the wackos come to say, let me go get myself established. They won't go into a church that is established. No, they want to get in on the ground floor. They want a platform to announce their doctrine that is wacko. We're not to deal with well, we are to deal with it. We're not to put up with it, should I say. Paul told Titus in chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, he says, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonitions. Two strikes and yo out. <laughs> it goes beyond Clinton's plan, right? Okay, anyways, down flesh. Reject a divisive man 
after the first and second admonition, verse 11, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Paul is making sure Titus understands. You are not to sit here and entertain this. You instruct them once, you instruct them twice, and then you instruct them to get out. How about that? Even when they leave, if necessary, we need as a pastor, I need, pastors need to look and say, if I know where that divisive person is going, if they're trying to get plugged into another church, I need to pick up my phone or go visit that church and talk to that pastor and say, the man that has come into your fellowship is dangerous and he's a divisive person. Prove that, Paul. I will in a minute, okay? First, Romans says this in chapter 16 at the end of the letter to Rome. Paul writes in chapter 16, verse 7, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark, scopeo, scope out them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. It doesn't mean you avoid them and let them continue to contaminate or defile the rest of the body. It means you avoid them by getting rid of them. 1 Timothy 3, excuse me, 6. 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 5. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine, please notice when it says the, that is called a definite article. It is defining the importance. This is not a broad spectrum. It is the doctrine. It's the doctrine that counts. That's based in the origin of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is to save all sinners, as we've seen. But nevertheless, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine, the doctrine which accords with godliness, here is his description of that person. He is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute, that means empty, completely empty, of the truth. There's that definite article again. Who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now, has anybody watched the TV evangelist? Have you ever seen? No. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to leave that alone. He goes on to say, from such, in other words, from such people as I just described, the ones that are full of envy and strife and reviling and evil suspicions and on it goes, from such withdraw yourself. Don't fellowship with them, brothers and sisters. They're dangerous. As pastors, 
we must be willing to warn another church if we are aware where this divisive individual is going, okay? And here's the proof of what I was saying. 2 Timothy 4, verses 14 and 15. Still speaking to Timothy, of course. And remember, this is Paul. These are the very last words he actually pens before he dies. Second Tim, the chronology of these pastoral letters is First Timothy, Titus, then Second Timothy. Actually, it's not the way it's actually put in the Bible. First and Second Timothy, then Titus. Titus is in between the two because Second Timothy is the very last letter that Paul wrote at his second imprisonment, where he was beheaded, according to tradition. Okay. But in 2 Timothy 4, verses 14 and 15, if you're there, say amen. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. Quick prayer. May the Lord repay him accordingly to his works. (laughs) I love that. Did you catch that? That was Paul's quick prayer. May the Lord repay him according to his works. And then in verse 15, he says, you, speaking to Timothy, you, Timothy, also must beware of him. Why? This is why. Please pay attention. For he has greatly resisted our words. What's Paul's words? Sound doctrine. That's what he's been talking about the whole time through these pastoral letters whether it's to Titus or Timothy. Paul is giving a direct warning to a pastor about an individual congregant, thereby holding that congregant, which is Alexander, accountable. So he can't go to another church and cause division. It's right there in the scripture. This isn't the norm anymore. It seems to me, and from my experience, that churches have a tendency to tolerate these individuals. I'm not saying we do, but I'm saying I have seen it, and I still see it going on. Even in some churches where I have dear brothers as pastors over them, They tolerate divisive people. They'll sit there and argue with them and then leave the conversation and allow that person to come for years to argue with everybody else in the congregation. They're resisting the sound doctrine that is actually being taught in that fellowship and it's allowed to go on. It is very unnerving for me and that's why I bring this forth because All y'all here this evening and watching are seeing one of the responsibilities of your pastors. Whatever church you go to, this is a responsibility. According to the scripture, you also, Timothy, beware of him because he has greatly resisted our words. You know, a lot of times I see in churches that when there is a divisive person and they leave, they're just happy that that individual's out of their hair. Now, I don't say that tongue in cheek because I don't have hair. But what I'm saying is 
It's like, man, I'm so glad that that was such a burden on me. God, I was so divisive. I just felt like I was just way down. Well, you should have dealt with him the first time and the second time and then had nothing to do with him. That means excommunicate. See, that's a word we don't like to hear. And you can find that in Corinthians, okay? That should never happen. A pastor, if he knows, and, and we don't know, because in this culture, we got to remember there wasn't a church every 500 feet or on every corner where they could just slide and bounce around. Here we're talking about gaps of land. But Paul made sure he took the time, even facing death in the last days of his life, to make sure that Timothy knew that this guy was a threat to the congregation if he shows up. That's why he warned him, and he let him know why. Beware him, because he has greatly resisted our words. Now, I'm done. Now all the pastors, can, I can get fired, whatever, I don't know. But it is what it is. If you disagree with the Scriptures, there's nothing I can do about that. On a personal level, Second John, okay? This will be brief. Like I said, the first one was going to be controversial, which meant long. <laughs> On a personal level, <clears throat> this is how sound doctrine can apply. Second John, verse 9. There's only one chapter, by the way. So, Whoever transgresses, and does not abide, that means to remain, in the doctrine, here we go again, of Christ, of who? Of Christ, does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine Everybody paying attention, say amen. amen. All right, what does the rest of that verse say there in verse 10? Do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Personally, on a personal level, we apply this. We use sound doctrine to determine whether we can have fellowship in our homes with certain people and certain groups. Years and years and years ago, when I was a young lad in the scriptures, in the Lord, I came home from work one evening. I'd been working late. And I walk in, God bless my wife, and she's watching. Maybe the door will be locked. I don't know. I walk in, and there's a living room full of Mormons. <laughs> and I'm like, what in the world's going on? You're going to get Mormon juice on you, okay? That's a that's personal inside joke from a pastor I serve with in another church. We use sound doctrine so that we know who we can fellowship with, who we can invite in and participate and have fellowship. That, you know, when we talk about fellowship, we're talking about an intimacy. 
because the word fellowship is used with our own relationships with the Lord. For instance, Jehovah Witnesses. I will talk to them as graciously as I can out on my front porch, but I do not invite them into my home. I don't. Because I don't agree with them. And when they get ready to leave, I will discuss scripture with them. But when they get ready to leave, I always ask, can I pray with you before you leave? And they will say no. Because we don't pray according to them to the same God. What do you mean? Because their Jesus is the Archangel Michael. Did you know that? They are non-Trinitarian. Did you know that? Okay. Mormons, they are nice people. Okay. But they have some whacked out theology. And like, I'm going to say it, like a lot of Roman Catholics, Mormons don't even know the theology of their own faith in Mormonism. They, They don't have any clue as to what, and it's a very sexually minded, immoral religion. And their Jesus is the spirit or half-brother of Lucifer. Are you aware of that? You see, they don't have the same Jesus either. So therefore, I can't have fellowship, and they should not have been in my living room. But I was at work. Anyways. It hasn't happened since. I can say that. Um, my, my wife's very good about stuff like that now. <laughs> and she's much more gracious than I am. And Islam, same thing. They're non-Trinitarian. Uh, if, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and God the Son, you are an infidel. Okay? What does that mean? You need to be killed. That's what that means according to the Quran, okay? Enough said. Sound doctrine allows us, you and I, brothers and sisters in the Lord, to ask the right questions before we invite someone into our home and have an intimate time of fellowship with them. That's another reason why, I guess you could add, that sound doctrine is so important, but that's certainly how it can be applied. And lastly, the way it can be applied is in a congregational or a corporate way. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. Paul says this, let the elders, and by the way, elders um, are used uh, along with poiman, which is pastor, elder, um, Episcopos, uh, those are interchangeable terms. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Sound doctrine applied in a congregation's life should bring about honor for their pastor. Does everybody hear that? Sound doctrine applied in a congregation's life should bring about honor for their pastor. What a blessing to a pastor to know that he is loved 
for his labor of love. I can't speak for anybody here, but I know I have been in situations in churches before the Lord brought me into, you know, what I consider a balanced church, which is Calvary Chapel movement. I did, you know, the whole theological pendulum swing. Um, But the bottom line is, you know, I've seen people just starve a pastor uh, financially, pick them apart. Just, it's terrible. But right here, this scripture, sound doctrine is saying, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. It doesn't mean we lift them up on a pedestal and make them something that they're not. It simply means we need to honor them for what God has called them to do because it's not just a physical battle that they deal with. The spiritual battle that your pastor goes through is unreal, whether he will admit it or not. And being someone that has been in the senior role as well, I know what I'm saying. And there are many things that I used to go through that I never shared with the elders or my assistant pastor because the way I saw it in Scripture, those were certain things I needed to keep between me and the Lord. And what it did was keep me on my face before the throne of God saying, Lord, pour out your mercy and grace on me. I need you now. But know this. Honor your pastor. And one of the greatest ways you can do that is pray for him, his wife, and if he's got children, for them as well. Because what I found from my own personal experience years ago, man, some of the testimonies of the mission pastor I had in in school of ministry, he planted a church in Moscow, Russia. And some of the things that he went through, it just... I was like, why am I doing this? Do I really want to, do I want my wife to go through this? Because what the enemy would do was attack his wife. That's the way the enemy will try to take out the legs of your pastor is to attack the wife. Pray for your pastor. That is one way you can certainly honor him. It does your pastor good to know that he is loved because of his labor of love. The writer to the book, the writer of the book of Hebrews said in chapter 13, verse 17, and this will be my last support scripture. Whoever the writer is, we know it was the Holy Spirit, but who he used, I have no clue and I don't care. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. Why? For they watch out for your souls, for your souls, as those who must, what, give an account. You see, a pastor's going to stand before the Lord and give an account for the way he has watched over the flock that God has given him. That's another reason why we need to pray for our pastor. Let them do so, meaning the congregation, let them do so with joy and not with grief. Excuse me, the pastor, let them do their jobs with joy 
and not with grief. Why? He even tells why. Because that would not be profitable for you. It would actually, he says, it would be unprofitable. When a congregation is grumbling and murmuring all the time, that weighs on a pastor. If ever there's a discrepancy in something, it never hurts if you don't understand something. Your pastor's willing to come ask me what what you're talking about. We'll go through the scripture, but be prepared for your pastor to answer your question from sound doctrine. You know why? Because that's his J-O-B. And that's a J-O-B that God has called him to. It is not a vocation. It is a calling. It's called a divine calling. So remember that as a congregation, as one of the ways that sound doctrine applies to the pastor, to you and I personally and individually, as well as corporately as a congregation. Amen. If you all will stand with me, we will go ahead and pray and be dismissed. Father, thank you for this time in your word. I, Lord, I, I just trust by faith that you have ministered to your children uh, far and wide here and there. Lord, I pray that we would have a greater understanding of sound doctrine, what it means, the importance of it, and Lord, how it can be applied in our lives personally and as a congregation. And Lord, to my brothers who are actually pastors as well. Always remembering that the way these things are meted out in our lives is through the person of the Holy Spirit who resides in us. And he wants to explain sound doctrine to us, but we must be in the word. Thank you for this time this evening, Lord. I do want to pray, Lord, as we close, pray for our brother, Bill Barr. I want to lift up Linda Rader, Bob Moretz, as well as Danny Adams. Lord, you know the physical maladies that they're dealing with. Lord, you know Danny's surgery tomorrow. Father, would you place your hand upon all those mentioned? And Lord, for those that I'm not even aware of, bless them and may whatever they're going through as far as medical procedures, may it be and bring relief to them. Have mercy on them, I ask, and I ask these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus the Christ. And those in agreement said, amen. God bless each of you.